the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 380 Premium for Thursday, February 9th, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. Premium. I think you all know why you're here, but just in case, maybe for a refresher, John, we should tell them that we have you send in your questions. We have you send in your tips. We try to answer your questions to the best of our ability and sometimes reach out to the community. In fact, the community is always open to uh, to comment on on anything we say. Uh, and we sometimes provide tips of our own. And then we like to talk about cool stuff found. And... One last thing. Right here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> and right now, right here <laughs> in Fearful, Connecticut, John F. Braun. There he is, ladies and gentlemen, John F. Braun. Uh, yeah, here we are again. And there you are, our uh, loyal, valued premium listeners, premium subscribers. Something that uh, is immensely humbling to us both here. So thank you very much. I guess we should get moving. Feels like the pace is already kind of slower than usual, huh? Uh, I I heard you have a sip of tea or something, so. Oh, you did hear me. I know. Usually, you know, mm-hmm. I have the microphone aimed sideways. So, like, the, the mic is, um, uh, I should take a picture and post it. I'm not talking directly into it. I'm actually talking across the front of the microphone. But what's nice about that is I don't get any pops. I don't get as many pops because I'm not talking into it. And then I also can easily get off access to take a sip of tea. Of course, that time... I went directly in front of the microphone and, and had a sip of tea. So my apologies to both you, John, and, and of course, collectively all of our listeners. That's okay. Well, I avoid that. I just get an IV with a gin and tonic going. So That's a good idea. It avoids that, that slurping quinine, sound. Though. You got to watch that quinine. You know, quinine, I learned this and then we'll, if you put a black light to it, apparently oh, it's, yeah. uh, it fluoresces. It does. I just saw this one day online and it's, it's really freaky. I mean, it's a, it glows on nice UV. Uh, all right. That's how so, that's how we test you um, at the end of the night, like at Macworld Expo, for uh, for to see what you had. We we just shine a black light on you, and and if you glow, then then we know. Well, I think uh, if anyone who was at Cirque du Mac, I think if you shined a UV light on people, uh, yeah, there'd be a lot of people. Glow- Everybody was glowing. That's good. Glowing Almost is everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I never, I never, this year I did have a beer at Cirque du Mac. I think I had two by the time the night was over, but, uh, but I rarely actually get to enjoy. In fact, I had to wait in line for a beer at the, at the bar. And one guy's like, this is crazy. Why are you waiting in line? I'm like, eh, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Hey, you're, you're high energy enough, man. Right. I mean, you're already a kind of a basket case with all the adrenaline and up on stage and everything like that. You're, yeah. you're, you're a high energy type of guy, Dave. I am. I know. I know. That's how I, that's how I roll. And I stay away from caffeine, but, uh, you know, Hey, that's how it goes. I, I have a prediction that we are going to have audio issues in this show. We already had one set of them during a uh, pre-show, but I, I just have this feeling like it's just not going to work out, but uh, you're recording on your end, right, John? Absolutely. And I'm looking at the Skype stats, no packet loss. Uh, oh, oh, okay. I'm seeing send packet loss oh. and it went away. Huh? Just it knew you were looking at it. All right, let's uh, let's get to Robbie's question. We have a couple of questions here about uh, iTunes libraries and uh, and even a tip. So we'll uh, we'll start with Robbie and and see where we go. Robbie writes, 
I have my iTunes media libraries, etc., on an external drive that gets shared between my Mac Pro and my MacBook Pro. I have this have I, I have had this particular setup for years with no problems. Today, though, when I open iTunes on the MacBook Pro, everything is just as I left it. Music library, playlists, TV shows, movies, everything is just right. I quit iTunes. I move the external drive to the Mac Pro. And when I open iTunes, there is no media, music, playlist, nothing. The iTunes library file and iTunes XML file reside on the external hard drive as well. The timestamp of both files updated when I opened iTunes on the MacBook Pro first. Uh, if on the MacBook Pro, I right click on the iTunes library.itl file on the external drive, iTunes opens and everything is good. If I try that process on the Mac Pro, iTunes opens and there is no media, playlist, music, movies, etc. How can the library be borked? I've never seen or heard of anything like this before. Okay, so in iTunes, it depends on how you have your, your iTunes library because it, it configured because you can go into iTunes and in, and you go in and iTunes preferences and uh, advanced I believe you can, you can set the iTunes media folder location and of course you can set that to an external drive but uh, that moves all your media your podcast your your videos your TV um, your movies and of course all your music files all out to that drive but your iTunes library file, the thing that knows what you have, keeps track of what you have, um, organizes all your playlists and stores all that stuff. That's actually stored in your home music iTunes folder. So I'm not sure how you're doing this, Robbie, if you set up symbolic links or or what. But uh, but my guess is that iTunes on your Mac Pro is looking in your home iTunes home music iTunes folder for its library files. And of course it didn't find them. So it started from scratch that, but, but John, you, I hope I'm hoping you have some thoughts on this, John. You bet I do brother. All right. Now the other thing, all right. So, so you probably brought up a, a valid point with the advanced and iTunes media folder location. And that's certainly one important piece of information. The other is, and this is in a support article and, you know, I'm still getting the same, bizarre behavior but i'm seeing i think i see what apple's doing dave okay because i found an article now of course when i tried to bring it up and, and a lot of you probably run into this because we linked to these in the lovingly handcrafted show notes which i still have to get to the ones for the last episode anyways how to open an alternate itunes library file or create a new one now number one i noticed this article has a different layout but it also covers how to do this in both windows and the mac so it looks like apple is revamping their support article database what i'm wondering dave and I, I think we've discussed this in the past and i think this is accurate is so so again there's that directory the itunes media folder location which as you pointed out contains these xml and what itl files but i believe those are set so so depending on what platform you're on you hold down a certain key when you launch itunes and you can either create a new library or choose a different library and as far as i know that's the first library that itunes is going to look for so I'm wondering if you want to repeat that operation and just make sure on, on both computers that you are, in fact, choosing that, that the library that it thinks it should be going to is the external one. Oh, you know what could have happened is if yes. he right, if he launched iTunes without the external drive connected, it may have defaulted to the, you know, the, the default location and then not gone back. Oh, that's interesting. That's that's what occurred to me when, when I read over this. Yeah. So. 
So I relinking think, to them, I think. May, uh, but I thought. So you do this. Maybe by maybe it gives up now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, it depends. Yeah. So on the Mac, you hold down option on. And then, uh, we don't care about the Windows version. Oh. <laughs> not as not. Yeah, not you hold on option, and you will get a box that will say, "Okay, choose library, create library, or quit." So of course you say choose library, and then you point your you know, use the file browser and you, you point to the library that you'd like to load, which could be on an external drive. Um, um, and then I'm wondering if what's that. happening, well, it should remember it, but I'm wondering is if it doesn't find it, does it default to, yeah, I bet it does. Okay. Maybe, maybe that could be it. If, if I always thought that it, it would keep trying unless you, you intentionally chose a different one. It would keep trying. It, it would first look where it thinks it should be. And then if not, then it would default to a blank one, I guess. Right. Oh. Right, right. Huh. Well, we'll have to test. Or Robbie will test and get back to us. But I bet I bet you're on to something there, John. I bet that's it. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, ready to move on? Yes. Awesome. So uh, s- sticking in the similar vein here, Ralph, uh, I-, I wonder if we should share Daniel's tip first. Well, let's talk about let's talk about Ralph here. Uh Ralph says, I have one iTunes account, which I access with multiple Macs and iOS devices. When I'm at home, I sync both my iPhone 4S and my second gen iPod touch to one iTunes account through my Mac. When I'm away from home, which is about four or five months of the year, I sync to the same iTunes account through my 15 inch MacBook Pro. My question is around the transition from one Mac to another. When I prepare to hit the road, I update my MacBook Pro to replicate all iTunes content on my iMac so that I have all my apps, TV shows, etc. Uh, exactly the same on both Macs, probably using something similar to what Robbie's doing here, where he's syncing that library folder and files. Uh, iTunes recognizes the host machine is different and wants to scrub the content of the iOS device in preparation for syncing the content to the new machine. I then go through the laborious process of redownloading all my apps, music, etc., from my computer to my iOS device. When I return home, I have to do the whole process over again in reverse. Is there an easy way to merge rather than replace when changing the host Mac used to sync iOS devices to iTunes? I hear I hear snapping noises. Is that you, John? I was more clucking. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, Mr. Cluckmeister, go take it. Uh, yet again, a couple of articles here that I think will solve this problem. And I think really? the key to this, well, yes. So I found an article, which I think applies using iPhone, iPad, or iPod with multiple computers. Does that sound like the thing what we want to do here? Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, curious, so I think, I'm curious where you're going with this. So yeah, go. Okay. Well, uh, and actually I found two articles and I think you got to look at both of these to do what you want. So there's the one that I just mentioned, which is using a device with multiple computers. And then there's another one here, which they, they reference, which is manually managing content. So I think what's happening is that the, the, the case that I think Apple likes, and it makes life easy if you, if you follow this, is to have one iTunes library go to one device. I think that's, that's an assumption that I think they make, and I think they like just to sell computers and devices. One, but if you want to go out of that paradigm, then you have to, I think, look at these articles and consider manually managing things so that a device is not tied to a library. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, but the only thing that sucks about that is playlists and all of that don't automatically get put out there. Right. Right. So, um, okay. So, yeah, the, the, right. iTunes, 
as we know it is not built to sync this way. However, I I'm in a I'm in a similar situation in that sometimes I travel and sometimes I'm at home. Uh, and instead of going through what Ralph's talking about, John, I just have kind of given up on the concept of syncing while I'm out. Uh, and so I don't I, I do not sync with my MacBook Air or, or my portable while I'm out. And that's been OK, but, you know, it stinks wanting to get, you know, if I want to get files uh, from my Mac to my iOS device in you know, in that way, I can't. Uh, so what I have. But but lately that has changed. And the reason it's changed is with iTunes match. Um, and iCloud, I can back up my iOS device to the cloud. And now not only does iTunes match, let me. Uh, sync my music library to my music library in the cloud, which is managed by my uh, my uh, iMac here in the office. But I can also set up my MacBook Air to sync to iTunes Match. And now everything is the same. So while I'm not plugging in, uh, I am still syncing all of my stuff wireless or, or yeah why, well it is wireless but it's also over the network uh to itunes match and it sort of solves this problem in a different way and and it does require kind of a paradigm shift for you and 25 bucks a year because that's what apple will get for uh you signing up for itunes match but uh but it, it really makes that whole process simpler because you just no longer is your ios device married to a computer um in in that way, I mean, it still is. You still can do the wireless syncing, uh, and and it will be married in that sense, but not for your music library. So maybe that uh, maybe that doesn't. I don't know. It's worth it's worth trying. It might be enough for you, Ralph. And then we have Daniel, and Daniel noticed something. Uh, well, very interesting. He said, I found a cool thing this evening. You can actually sync an iDevice with more than one library concurrently, which is what you were talking about, John. He says, I believe this is strictly on a content type basis. For example, I have my main computer, a MacBook. I also have a Windows machine that is always on a server of sorts. I want to have the always on computer sync podcast because they'll stay up to date. All my other content can remain syncing with my MacBook. Uh, I don't believe you can mix and match within a content type, i.e. five artists from one computer and four artists from another. Uh, attempting this results in a warning about replacing content that we've talked about. It says, uh, I'm not sure. How, so I'm not certain how much of this functionality is dependent on iOS five, iCloud or iTunes match. I've only attempted this with iOS five and iTunes match. But what he's pointed out is that and, and you have been able to do this for quite some time, as you mentioned, John, but it also works wirelessly. So when you're doing wireless syncing, uh, which is new in iOS five, you can wirelessly sync your movies to one computer and your music with another. If you're not using iTunes match. And if you are, then of course it, it it's a little bit different with, with regards to music, but certainly apps and photos and podcasts and all that can be switched from computer to, you know, you can split them and have one come from one computer and one type and another type come from another. So that's pretty cool. Hadn't noticed that before. Good stuff, Mr. Braun. I'll try it. All right. Are, are you, you have not signed up for iTunes match. Is that right? Correct. Okay. I am. Um, I am pleasantly surprised with it, uh, with how well it's working. It just, it just kind of works with, with, with some, you know, funky exceptions every now and then. If you start, I'm curious if, if anybody's uh, run into this, if you start downloading something over 
3G and then stop it. Um, oftentimes, you cannot restart that download until you get to a Wi-Fi network, which is really weird. The track will show up in there, but you can't play it and you can't tell it to re-download until you get to Wi-Fi and then it comes in fine. So I, I've experienced that and I think at least one other listener has too. So, so there you go. You, do you think you're going to sign up for it, John? I don't think so. All right. No, I mean, I got pretty much, I got all my music on the mini and I, I sync it all with uh, an iPod touch that I have. Yep. And that's really, really it. The, the one thing I do want to dabble with, I, I, I looked at it briefly, but you know, Amazon has their cloud drive and yeah. I have bought MP3s from Amazon. And I guess if you buy MP3s from them, they allow free storage or if right. you buy music from them, they'll, they'll give you the MP3s. Uh, for free without taking up any, any cloud storage space. That's right. And I assume they offer a iPhone or iDevice app to let you play that. Um, or no? no, I don't think they do. I think that's one of the weaknesses of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there is no, uh, unless something has changed, there is no way to access the Amazon cloud from your iOS device other than, uh, you know, going through the browser. And that's no fun. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You're clucking again. This is new for you. Yes. Okay. I'm clucking. All right. Well, I, said, I, I was at the beach and I saw a lot of ducks. I guess some, some rubbed off on me. Nice. <laughs> like water off a duck's back. Uh, okay. Uh, Joe writes, guys, I'm having trouble with time zones when I travel, so I must have something set incorrectly. Here's the scenario. I have a meeting set at 8.30 a.m. San Francisco time, but the meeting is displayed on the calendar at 10.30 a.m. I have date and time set to set automatically on, and time zone is now set for Cupertino, where I am now. When I turn automatically to off, the time zone reverts to Chicago, which is the time zone of my hometown in Milwaukee. Uh, how do I set the iPhone so that my calendar times stay local to the time zone in which they will appear when I travel? Okay, yeah, so this... This is something, you know, we talked about this, John, in a, in a Mac Geek a, a long time ago, because um, we, we were at Macworld Expo, and I think it was right after, um, it was right after the iPhone came out or something. Anyway, uh, we've been through this. Here's, but, it, but it's not straightforward. So there's two things you need to do to get your calendar to display events in their at the correct time, regardless of what time zone you're in. And when I say that, I mean that if you're putting things in, like, let's say I'm here on the East coast. Uh, if I say that I have a meeting that's at 1 PM Eastern time, I know that that meeting is going to be at 10 AM Pacific time. And so when I, if I fly from, uh, you know, uh, New Hampshire, or Boston, rather to San Francisco, I want that to then show up at 10 o'clock on my calendar. I want the times to be, uh, universally correct. So assuming you're doing things that way, uh, what you need to do is the following on your iOS devices. If you have more than one going to go into settings, go into general, go into date and time. And as Joe points out, you have set automatically uh, turned on. What this setting does is it sets your time zone based on what the cell network tells your phone uh that it is that it should be set to or location services if you're uh, if you're doing it that way. So so that's getting your time zone automatically. That's that's step one. And that's really handy because, you know, when you turn on your phone as the plane's taxiing, it gets a new time and everything's happy. 
Then, and this is the trick, back to settings, go to mail, contacts, and calendars, and go to time zone support, which is way, way down almost at the bottom. And this is where it's going to be strange. You're going to set time zone support to off. And and this is totally not intuitive to me, John. I don't know how you feel about it, but it, but the description in, in gray text below it is correct. And the description says when time zone support is off, events will display according to the time zone of your current location. And that's what you want. So it's that simple, but it's, uh, but it's not obvious to me. So happy to share that tip. I, you know, I agree with you. And you know, here's what I did before I went to Macworld and I kind of, I solved the problem. <sighs> kind of coincidentally, meeting all the criteria that you met there. So I didn't really fiddle with the device at all, except no, I did do the same thing you mentioned is, is uh, I would have the device sync to the, the time server and then yeah it, right. it, would, it would automatically roll everything back on the calendar but what I did is when I scheduled my events so I would schedule them on iCal on my computer and what I did is I would schedule them three hours earlier okay so you were doing the right but but you were setting it to three hours earlier oh I see so you weren't assigning the events a time zone when you scheduled them earlier you were just letting them be at, in eastern time essentially right and to dig in a little bit here and then I just noticed so another option is that within iCal there is a selection in advance called turn on turn on time zone support that's right and that's what that right. does is it gives you an additional selection when you schedule an event that lets you indicate what time zone that event is occurring in and I suppose that would have been the uh, another way for me to schedule my Macworld appointments. What I did in my head was just, you know, so for example, I knew Cirque to Mac was starting at uh, 8 Pacific, so I put it on the calendar because I had time zone support off on iCal and I said it started at 11. So, of course, when I got to California, it, scheduled, it, it showed up on my calendar in the right time because the, the phone took care of it. Okay, as, yeah. As did iCal, because of course I did the same thing on my computer is that with my computer, it, it would automatically set the time zone and then it rolled back everything because I had, so I had time zone support off and it rolled it back three. So, so I, yeah, I guess I got lucky had, that this all worked. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, that's true. Cause that's setting an iCal is a little misleading when you have time zone support off. Really what that means is I am going to assume that every event you enter is in the time zone of that your computer is at the moment that you yes. enter it. And that's what I did in my head. Again, right. I, I, I did the math, yeah. so I would, I would uh, you know, do a three-hour uh, difference. That's right. If you don't want to do the math, you can turn on time zone support in right. iCal. In, yeah, in iCal. And then you just set the time zone. Now, if you had made the mistake of, say, setting Cirque du Mac at 8 p.m. and all your other meetings at the time that they were going to be, but you did it when you were in Eastern time and then you moved on over to... Uh, to California, that's when you would use this mail contacts calendars in the settings and you would turn time zone support on and you mm -hmm. can once it's on, you can force the time zone of your calendar only to be on East Coast time. So if you had made that mistake, then you would turn time zone support on force your calendar to be on you know New York time and then everything would be fine. Cirque du Mac would still be at eight o'clock and all of that would work. So you can force your calendar into a certain time zone. And that's what that time zone, quote unquote, support is. It's, it's a very it's a misnomer, but it's what it is. And it's always been that way in iOS. So, OK. All right. 
we have another one from, uh, I believe, a different Joe. And Joe says, I'm a longtime listener who occasionally gets a strange message saying another device on the network is using your computer's IP address. Try connecting again later. Then it goes on. What does it really mean? Have I been caught? Mr. Braun? No. Good. I don't believe so. And here's what I think is happening. So, number one, if you don't know this already, so an IP address, uh, first off, the IP address he was given is a 192 address. So that's a NAT assigned address or, or a non-routable address, which I assume is being issued by a time uh, time capsule or, or air, airport or similar device uh, handing out DHCP addresses. Now, I'm making that assumption. So... One thing is that there are two ways to, to assign addresses. One is that you manually assign them to the devices. And when you set up a device, you can manually assign an IP address. And that this is what people had to do in the old days before DHCP. One thing that could be happening is that the devices in general, all the devices on the network are set up for DHCP, but there may be one device for whatever reason, and I know the details, uh, that may not be a Mac or, or I don't know why, but if it's set up, to manually grab an IP address and maybe it grabs it manually and then someone try the DHCP server tries to hand it out using DHCP, you'll get this message. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because the network in general, yeah, the thing is that you cannot have two devices with the same IP address on the network. It, it's just a recipe for a disaster. It's and, a bad and, idea. And every OS will, will prevent this. And it basically won't let you on. It'll say, hey, you're trying to get this address. Somebody already has it. Get, get lost. But there, um, was, there was one time in a hotel where I realized that there was this one machine. This went on for days and days. This mm -hmm. one machine uh, was, had a virus. It, was, it turned out to be a Windows machine. And it was blowing up the router every 60 seconds. It was forcing the router to restart. You can imagine that this is a problem. For, for anyone in the hotel. So uh, what I learned to do was I forced my IP address to theirs and I could blow theirs off the network for 24 hours, but I had to keep banging at it and finally it would work. But, uh, but anyway, there's that. Cause I knew the router was rebooting. So I knew I could like right. get in, you know what I mean? Anyway, you're right. Yeah. You can't have more than one. So one thing you could do now, if it's an airport and depending on your router, it probably offers this, this feature, yep. but you could try to find out who is, who is getting this address first. And at least on an airport, the way you do this on an airport is you run the airport utility, the old uh, airport utility. Correct. I'm, and I, yeah, because I couldn't find the, cause I don't think this feature is available on the new airport. This utility. Is, this is ex a perfect classic example of the difference between the two. Yep. You're right. So what you do is if you go to the airport menu, then you go to summary, there's going to be uh, something that says wireless clients, which go with me here. It could be a wired client, but if you click on wireless clients, then it'll give you a screen that'll have a number of options. And there are two important ones. Well, the, the important one here, again, assuming DHCP is called DHCP clients. And if you click on that tab in the old airport utility, I think 5.6, it now is called, it will show all the devices that have been given a, that have been assigned by DHCP and it will give the IP address the MAC address, which if you know the MAC address of your devices, and if you don't, you probably should, because that's going to help you with the next thing I'm going to suggest. But again, this table shows IP address, MAC address, uh, client ID, which is an optional thing. Some devices will fill that in. Like, for example, my TiVo does, or my TiVo adapter does. Uh, 
Yep. So that could also help you identify the device. Some devices will fill in the client ID, but it's not required. You and can, it'll show when the lease is assigned. You and can yeah, you set can, that on your Mac sure. note. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you want to make it easier for yourself, go into either Ethernet or Airport uh, in your, well, let's see. Let me, let me back up here. Sorry, John. System preferences, network, and then choose whatever your connection method is, uh, Ethernet or Airport. Hit advanced. Go to TCP IP, and that's where you can set the DHCP client ID. I I always err on the side of not using spaces in that because I I, oh. I used to use routers like a long time ago that freaked out at that. I think it might it's probably okay now, but uh, but I have you know old habits die hard. But uh, but that can show up. Some things don't read it right. Some routers don't, so it might not show up for you. But uh, but it can help you narrow down what computers what. And the other thing that happens, and actually looking here, I believe at least the Mac fills that in automatically. Because what I see here is the client ID. I see two devices. One is called JB MacBook Pro, and one is called JB Mac Mini. And I don't recall filling in the client ID. So at least Macs will fill that in. And actually, I see two others here. I see TiVo dash and a big long number, yep. and iFi and a big long number, which looks to be a Mac address or at least a part of it. Yeah. So a lot of devices will fill that in. So, so maybe this table will help you figure out who's, try, who's stealing this address. One suggestion that I have, and, and this is what I do on my network, just to avoid these sort of problems. So the way DHCP works is that there's a pool of addresses and it will hand them out. It'll set a lease time. And when the lease is over, it may hand it out to someone different. Uh, and usually it works just fine. But what I like to do is to assign a specific IP. Now, the problem, to, to back up here, the problem with DHCP is that whether you're on the internet as as a whole or on a local network is that you may not always get the same IP address. And in some cases you may want to get the same IP address. You may want it to be predictable. If for example, you need to connect to a network server and you need to type in the IP address <laughs> and it doesn't have a name. Right. Uh, here's the way to do that. And, and again, this is in the older, well, actually it's in the new airport utility. I'm going to refer to the old airport utility. And the way you would go about that is under, let's see, I believe it's internet, DHCP, and then there is a table here called DHCP reservations. And what you put in this table is two values. Or when you add a value, so, so here's what you do. So you can add a value, it asks for a description, and then you can reserve an address by either MAC address, which is what I prefer, but you could use the client ID. I prefer the MAC address because the MAC address can't easily be changed. It's always the same for every device. DHCP client ID, somebody could change it and then this won't work. So you choose MAC address and then you, you move on and you pair a specific IP address to the MAC address of a device. So what's going to happen here is that when that device comes on the network, it's always going to get the same IP address. And as, a, as we were discussing before, Dave, I do this not only for my own devices, but if I have someone come over, if I have someone who, who visits me more than once... <laughs> A regular, and they a, want, a recurring visitor. A regular, yeah. Like, you know, my buddy Duffy or the parents or my sister or something like that. And they want to get on my network. I'm like, get, get, give me your device. I'm going to give you a MAC address. Or, or I'm sorry, give me your MAC address and then I will set up a, a DHCP reservation for you so you'll always get the same one. That, that's a, It's a handy thing. I used to... Um I used to do manual addresses that I assigned on my computers for my network. And the problem was if I had to take one of those computers to another network, I had to go in and reconfigure it uh, to use DHCP, you know, and you can do it with locations and all that, but it's not automatic, uh, at least not by default in the OS. So, you know, I had to go and, and do all this stuff. 
and the reservations are 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 the are the, are the better solution as as John explained it's you know you get um the benefit of having the same IP all the time it's a manually assigned IP but you're manually assigning it at the server which means that your computer's configuration can remain the same and when you go somewhere else it just works right Beautiful. now the other the other thought is i look at this screen dave and DHCP. Another thing in this screen is something called DHCP beginning address. Here's the other thing that I think may be happening. So if Joseph is already using DHCP reservations, the one thing I noticed, and maybe this is just, oh, should have hit Sorry. There. Oh, I didn't hit mute. My apologies. Oh, I hit the wrong mute button. Sorry about that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That yeah. Gross. I know I've been hitting it uh, all the time. I I I, uh, I misfired on that one. My apologies, everybody. Sorry, John. Please continue. Uh, you may have to edit that out. <laughs> the other thing, and you know, people have actually said, well, DHCP beginning address is one value in this in this same screen. The thing is, Apple does not prevent you from putting a value in there that overlaps with DHCP reservations, and to me, that is. A faulty implementation. I don't know if you agree with me, but other people have actually said that to us saying, well, no, that, that should be. I think device should be smart enough because what, to me, what that means is that you could have the potential for the DHCP server to hand out an IP address. That's also a DHCP reservation. And I don't think that it, it should allow that. Or yeah. it should look at the DHCP reservations and set the DHCP beginning address, which is for machines that don't have a reservation, to a value that's outside of that. But for whatever reason, it, it allows you to let them overlap. And, it does. Uh, and, and that happened to me once where, yeah, it was unexpected things were happening because the DHCP server was handing out an address which I had set for a reservation and I was getting all confused until I set it above and then everything was great. So it may be a manually assigned thing or if not dig in like i mentioned and and find out what device is grabbing that address it, it could be a i it could be somebody that's just kind of wandering by and grabbing an address I'm, i hope you have some sort of secure and i don't want to assume this is wireless either it could be a wire device i don't know if there's a wire device somebody's plugging into your network and it's grabbing an address from dhcp uh, I, I don't know so it could be one other thing uh and then Go. we'll move on it's uh when if your Mac is sharing something could be an iTunes library, could be file sharing, could be, you know, any number of things. If your Mac is sharing something and you have an airport router uh, and you're running anything snow leopard or later, so 10.6 or later, something interesting will happen just as your Mac is about to go to sleep. It will hand off that sharing to the router. Now that doesn't mean that your router is going to share your iTunes library. What it means is that while your Mac is busy sleeping and not answering network requests, your router will sit there and act as though it's your Mac answering those same requests. So if someone and, and, and something very cool happens, if somebody says, Hey, I want to talk to the iTunes library on the, uh, you know, on the iMac and the iMac is sleeping, the router says, got it. It answers as though it is the iMac. So the other computer is none the wiser. It then sends a wake up request, a wake up over LAN request to your iMac, wakes that up and then hands th that off and stops answering as that. It's possible that what you're seeing here, Joe, is that your computer is seeing the router also acting as the computer based on its IP and the computer saying, whoa, whoa, 
I can't use that IP. You know, if there's some holdover on the router, if the, if the router thinks that the computer's still asleep, but the computer's not, it, that that could be happening. And I've seen that once or twice, and we've seen that with, in, in different things. So so that that could be part of it. And and if that's the case, it's not going to be solved by any of the things we've, we've discussed, but it just is what it is. But if it's happening all the time, my guess is it's not that. You're not going to see it that often. Apple's kind of worked out most of the kinks there, but it will happen occasionally. So it's just worth noting. If you can't solve it, that could be the answer to the mystery. You know, uh, John, we uh, we talk about console logs a lot when we're when we're doing the show here. And listener Brian uh, wrote in. It was actually in response to an answer that we had given him. He says, I've been hearing you checking, uh, hearing you talk about checking the console log a lot recently on your show, but I did not catch how to do that during any specific event. Can you tell me how? You want to tell them how to use the console there, John? Or shall I? Oh, it's our little secret. No, I'm going to tell them. Well, the way that I do it, well, at least uh, at least on my Snow Leopard machine, is I'll go to Spotlight and type console. Oh, that's that'll a good be the to top watch. hit. And actually, the, the Spotlight though it acts a little different on uh, Lion, uh, in that you have to type the whole thing out, where it usually matches it on Snow Leopard. I've always been kind of annoyed by that. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's the poor man's app launcher. So that's the, the usually the quickest way. And then, then I'll probably leave it running and you'll see it appear. And the thing I want to point out about console, and I think you suggested this, Dave, so, but I'm going to suggest a number of options here. So there are a few places you could look for messages. Now, one is all messages. And that's great because it's going to show you all messages, but you may not want to see that. Now, there is a way to filter the messages and you'll see this in the upper right hand corner and it says filter. And depending on what you're looking for, uh, uh, the sender of the console message could be the name of an application. It could be something kind of weird. It it really depends. Uh, I'm looking right now in my console on my Snow Leopard machine and I see Safari. That kind of makes sense. Firewall, that kind of makes sense. But then I see here something a little different. I see com.apple.kext cache. So you'll see things in one of two forms, either a, a single word or one of these something dot something dot something. And, and you just got to look at the console for a while to figure out, figure that sort of thing out. Yeah, it is a good idea to take a look at your console when your Mac is acting normally, uh, because you can kind of get a baseline as to what sort of messages are just going to kind of roll through here on a regular basis. And, um, and that, and that, that'll help you to kind of provide your own mental filters of, okay, Hey, wait a minute, this looks different. And, and like John said, using that string matching filter, that's a huge thing because if, you know, if you're trying to diagnose something with the, with the drive, you know, you know, you might try, try drive up there or disc or something, uh, you know, and if you, um, if you notice in that sender column that, uh, there's a process that you want to watch, like, you know, if you, if you want to watch time machine, that process is called backup D. And so a great thing to do is to just filter down to backup D only. And, uh, and then you're going to start seeing only time machine messages. And that kind of really helps, you know, weed out the, the mess. So yeah, there you go. Right. And if you want to find problems, uh, these are usually developers write these messages that they send them out as text messages. So if something's not going right, then if you search for something like error, fail, can't, or other s- similar negative words, 
uh, you'll bring up for the most part messages that have to do with something terrible happening. <laughs> now, the other thing you can do is that so there are a number of sections here. If you look on the if you look on the left hand side of the console, uh, you may or may not see this list. If you don't, then then there's going to be a button and it says show log list or hide log list. So if you click, if it says show log list, click on that and you're going to see the, a number of different logs. And one thing that you may want to do. So if you suspect a certain application is acting up here, rather than filtering, what you can do is go to and there, there are two uh, twisties or triangles or I, I'm not sure what you call those little guys. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's, it's a twist down. Uh, but what, what do you call that, Dave? A twist oh down. That's the new term. That's it. <laughs> I like it. And if you click on this next to either tilde slash library slash logs or slash library slash logs, you will see a list of, for the most part, applications, or at least here. So I'm looking in library logs and I'll see Apple File Service, CCC, which is Carbon Copy Cloner, I assume, Crash Reporter, Diagnostic Reporter. Um, so actually, most of those are system level. If you click on the one that's the tilde, which is your user directory, then you're probably going to see mostly applications. And I'm looking here and I see Drive Genius, Adobe, AIM, App Store, uh, and, and some other things. So look at either place. But if you suspect a certain application is acting up and you want to get messages that just come from an application, that's uh, another way to filter it and make it more relevant as, as to what you're seeing. Cool. Got anything else? No. I think it's time to uh, time to go listen to Anthony here. Take it away, Anthony. Hey, John, Dave, and Pilot Pete. It's Gary from Indiana again. I thought he said Anthony. Uh, I'm hoping that this is the right content comment, and I just misheard him. Otherwise, we've got a random question that we're going to answer. Long-time premium and regular show listener. Um, recently, I've been having a weird problem with my MacBook. It started when I was on Christmas break from school when I was at my dad's house. I noticed that volume was reduced a little bit, and I checked all my volume settings, and they were good. But then as I did a closer inspection, I noticed that uh, the sound was not coming out of the left speaker in my MacBook's built-in speaker. This is the MacBook Pro late 2009, and I'm under Apple Care, but... Uh, it seemed to work fine when I initially plugged in my set of external speakers that I normally use when I return to my apartment. But just today, all of a sudden, the left speaker quit making noise. I have another Windows laptop right next to it that I use for the absolute locations, or excuse me, the absolute occasions when I have to run a Windows program on the fly or for some reason my Mac's doing something and I need to complete a school assignment. I plug the speakers into that one, turned on a YouTube video, and both speakers work. Plugged it into my iPhone, same thing. Um, I was wondering what you could recommend that I try. I've tried restarting the computer. I've done both a PRAM and SMC reset. And uh, if I have to take it into the Apple store during spring break, then I will. But... I was just wondering what other things you could try to help me with this problem. I could do a nuke and pave if I absolutely have to, but I don't want to do that considering my iPhone screams at me every time I do, saying it's synced with another library, and then I have to make sure that I restore all my backups and everything before I do the initial sync. Thanks for the help, and keep up the good work. 
So uh, I don't think a nuke and pave is going to help, um, and and will and and may not uh, and may hurt as you pointed out. I but you can try that, right? I mean, if you boot from the system DVD, and you should be able to use the volume up and down when you're in like disc utility or whatever to uh, to see what happens, and you can just put your ear down and and you can tell right away if the stuff's coming out of both speakers. Um, there is a there there are two things that are interesting to talk about here. Number one is there's little wires and they're really little. I've uh, I've personally broken these uh, that connect to each speaker inside your MacBook Pro. So it's totally possible that uh, that one of these wires has just shorted out. They're kind of in a weird spot now. I mean, they shouldn't be moving around at all. But if certainly if you've been inside there, that's how I've broken them. Uh, that can that can do it. And then the other thing is, if your microphone is on, I believe on your machine, your microphone is situated right near your left speaker. And so Apple's actually smart about this. They uh, turn off, like if you're in a speakerphone situation where you're talking and uh, like iChat uh, kind of thing, if you're doing that, uh, or even Skype, I believe is smart enough to do this. Uh, and I think it's a system level thing. If you're if you're in a VoIP call kind of situation, it turns off your left speaker so that it doesn't have a speaker blasting right next to your microphone. And so it's possible that something has has triggered that to happen all the time in yours. And that would be where potentially a nuke and pave would would solve this. But you'll know that uh, when you boot from the the system DVD and and just try adjusting your volume uh, from there. And you'll that that'll tell you for sure. But, you know, otherwise, yeah, like you said, the SMC reset PRAM uh, is what are the things I would try. John. What about that MIDI? Oh, uh, yeah, dude, that could be it. What is it? MIDI uh, audio. It's it's called audio MIDI, audio MIDI. Set, MIDI setup. It's in uh, it's in applications utilities called audio MIDI setup. That could totally be it. Yeah, because I know we've had that come up before when, yeah. when the output gets confused, so maybe. Yeah, check built-in output there and see. It, it's going to list the channels in by number, but channel one, I believe, is left and channel two is right. But you can obviously experiment and figure that out, too. But uh, yeah, whoa, that totally could be it. Yeah. I'm with you on those small wires, though. The other small wires I ran into, Dave, and this was... Uh, I don't know if they do this anymore, but I had this where... All of a sudden, my MacBook Pro early 2008 started forgetting the time and date. Now, at least this vintage machine, uh, aggravatingly enough, has, uh, I think it's a, a PRAM or BIOS backup battery. It's a little three-volt cell. And the thing is, you don't... It, it, it's hard to determine what Macs have this. And the thing is, even if it's in the machine, there's no way to read the voltage level on it. It's very infuriating, but I knew that this Mac had one of those. And, and actually what happened on mine is that the battery itself was not dead. But I think what happened is when I was in the machine, I may have jostled something or the, the wires are just fragile. Um, that makes it, sense. It, it, the battery still had juice, but one of the tiny little wires had broken and the, this ba battery was not powering the circuit that remembered the time and date. So that's why every time I started up my machine or, or removed it from power, it then all of a sudden forgot. That was very upsetting. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, a lot of those wires are very tiny. And, and again, it could have been my fault. I could have, could have been 
you know, I try to be gentle in there, but no, it's buried beneath the CD drive. I, I didn't even get anywhere near it. I, I don't know. Huh? Interesting. All what, right. What are, you, what are you saying to me here? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I got this. Yeah. All right. Go. Yeah. So uh, Bruce had a comment. Take it away. Wow. Oh my gosh. This is my, my, my stage debut here. I hope I don't blow it. <laughs> Bruce writes, hi guys. In the last premium episode, you spoke about options in converting or moving iWeb sites. Here's a program that will convert from iWeb to WordPress. Amazing and cool. Uh, and what he found is something called from a uh, rage software, uh, rage SW.com, uh, called iWeb to WordPress. <laughs> uh, and it's 50 bucks. So if you use iWeb for blogging purposes, then uh, this sounds like a tool, uh, you want to look at 49 95. This sounds like a tool you may want to consider. Cool. That almost qualifies as cool stuff found. I think we've talked about that before, but we thought, you know, this iWeb thing coming to a head here, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's important that we get that right. Well, we ask people, uh, give us your thoughts uh, about moving away from iWeb and mobile me as your, your hosting service. And this is, this is one of them. Yeah. You want to, uh, you want to address Daniel here now, uh, since it's kind of in the same, same oh topic realm. Oh man. Daniel had a question. You want me to read the oh, question? Oh, I see. You, no, I got it. No, I got it. I'm, I'm right. just flipping around here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're, no, we're, handing, me, we're me, handing the baton to John for some of this, and now John gets to see all the crazy stuff I have to do during the show. This is good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to read through it here. So Daniel writes in, hi, guys. Now that iCloud has lost the ability to use photo galleries and web hosting, can you recommend the easiest way to publish pictures with a password? And if not, what's the best way to publish a basic website, hosting suggestions, etc.? Sorry if you have covered this recently, which we did. <laughs> um, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll end it there. I don't, I don't think I have to read the rest of this, do I? No, yes, I, think, I do. Know. I, I, you're, I see what you're I think going you're through. good. Yeah, I think you're good. All right. And so what I wrote back. So, yes, we did cover this in the in the last episode. And, and I mentioned that I am now uh, at least uh, for the time being a Flickr or actually Flickr pro fan. So right. if you're doing photos, then, you know, listen to the last episode and you'll find out all the reasons uh, that I like Flickr. I guess the only thing I would add is that someone did advise me that uh, you want to be careful and I think with any of these services, so this is a general comment, I'm not going to rehash, but Flickr Pro, you have to pay for. There's Flickr Free and Flickr Pro. The problem is, if you stop play, paying for Flickr Pro, you may lose access to some of your content. Oh. Well, what happens is that Flickr Free will only show you a certain segment of your content, or at least this is what one of my Twitter followers told me. And if you stop paying, then they, they kind of close the door a bit on you. They don't totally lock you out. But I guess my only caution is with any of these services. Um, and, and it sounds to me in this case, what happened was this person uh, stored their content exclusively on Flickr. So <laughs> my advice to you is do not store your content exclusively. I would say with anybody. You know, don't yeah. store your all. Uh, and, and what I'm doing, That's I avoid. I, well, yeah. I avoid that because all my content is stored in Aperture and I'm syncing it to Flickr. I'm not. Oh, gosh, I got to hit the mute key. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, you want to hit. You don't want to store with, with anyone because you don't know if they're going to go out of business or anything. So I'm syncing with Aperture. So all my content is 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 situated in Aperture and I'm just pushing it out to a service and actually in a degraded format where, where it's not the full resolution. Uh, so, uh, now another one that I found uh, a number of other options. So one that was suggested by this person who, who brought up some of the shortcomings of Flickr is SmugMug. Now SmugMug, from what I can see, there is no free plan. They have a 14 day trial. I'm trying that out. And they offer, uh, I think three tiers of a pay service. Um, and it looks pretty nice. 
uh, uh, I'm trying it out. Uh, I'm going to do the trial. And then another suggestion is that both Dropbox and SugarSync, and I think some of the other cloud services, and I think Dave, uh, I've been looking at some of these more in more detail, and I think you have as well. I, I think we may do a, a roundup or an evaluation of these guys. From a from a photo sharing standpoint, you mean? Well, no, I, I think just from a geek standpoint. There you go. Because I'm, I'm starting to learn about some of the differences. For example, SugarSync, I'm getting more of an appreciation for. They, they do some things that Dropbox doesn't. They're both good, but I think they're... they're they have different intents and different audiences, but both Dropbox and SugarSync Go ahead. have special modes where you can store photos and people can visit your Dropbox or SugarSync site and view photos. Um, I don't know if I recommend them for for because uh, the other services are meant for sharing photos. These happen to do it. So if you already have Dropbox or SugarSync, you may want to look at that as an option yeah. uh, to share your photos if if you're uh, if you just want to share. Uh, things on a casual basis. I, I think uh, both of those may be worth. Uh, yeah. It makes it really easy. They've got like nice little, they both have nice web uh, browser viewer kind of things to, to let you, you know, view photo galleries and that sort of thing. <clears throat> I will, uh, I will point out um, that uh, y- you mentioned the differences, the kind of the geek differences between Dropbox and, and SugarSync. Really from my perspective, uh, SugarSync is is probably all around a better solution simply because of how flexible it is. You can you can um, set folders to sync only to certain computers. You can set specific folders to sync as opposed to Dropbox where you're left with one. To me, the only benefit that Dropbox has now is that they were basically the first ones out. And so everybody has it. So I actually use Dropbox for sharing with others and SugarSync for all my own stuff. Because I can configure better, but I've got this one shared Dropbox folder that's on all of my machines and it's good for all the bands I'm in and you and I use it, John. And, you know, it's nice for for that sort of thing. But as far as my own syncing from all my Macs for all my own personal data, I've been using SugarSync for over a year. I'm I'm with you. And actually, I um, and SugarSync, what kind of scared me with SugarSync was so I synced it with one computer and then I, and then I wanted to add another computer. So it understands the concept of what devices you have registered with it. Whereas as far as I know, Dropbox does not really. And SugarSync let me sync a folder from one computer and then sync another folder. Well, the same folder. So actually I synced my documents folder from both my Mac mini and my MacBook pro to SugarSync. Yep. And at first I was afraid because I thought it would co-mingle them and, and confuse them all. And the thing is that's more or less from what I could see an option. And that you can sync folder, it understands, all right, this is the documents folder on, on this computer, and this is the documents folder on that computer, and it keeps them separate. So I think I'm backing up what you're saying is that it, it's good as a individual syncing solution. Right. And that you don't have to sync at all, which I think Dropbox is, is meant for a different purpose or a different audience, and that, yeah, you and I use it to share the show notes because we have a shared folder. Well, SugarSync lets you do a shared folder as well. That's right. Oh, yeah. So I don't think I've, I've done that. But but Dropbox, but I think, doesn't. It's not as easy. You know, if everybody already yeah. has Dropbox, it's like, well, you know, I don't want to ask everybody to install SugarSync. I just, you know, we'll use Dropbox. It's easier. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. Right. And both of them. Yeah. And actually, I just came off of a uh, 30 gig plan with a SugarSync. And so now being a cheapskate with the five plan and both them and Dropbox do offer a way where if you get other people to sign up, they'll, they'll give extra space. Uh, well, they both offer a, a free level and then they also offer extra space. If you, uh, if you refer somebody. That's right. So Dropbox's free plan is two gigs. SugarSync's free plan is five. 
And right. if you if you use a referral code, so we'll put referral codes in the show notes and uh, and we'll put them for both Dropbox and and SugarSync. If you use a referral code, Dropbox adds to 50 to you and the person who referred you. Uh, so you can help yourself and help either John or I. And we'll, I've got a plan for this, John. Because uh, I was going to say, who's the link? Right. That's put? right. And then SugarSync, they double that. You get 500 megs. So half a gig for yourself just for using our referral code. So you start with five and a half gigs. Uh, and then we also each get, you know, uh, whoever you use uh, gets 500 gigs, 500 megs, not 500 gigs. Cause that'd be awesome. Um, so the way we're going to split this up is everybody on the left, you use John's code and we'll put both in the show notes. Everybody on the right, you use mine. And, and that's how you split on yourself the left, up. On the left of what? Uh, you know, in, in front of us here in the audience, uh, you, all of you on the left-hand side, you use uh, John's code, and everybody on the right-hand side, you use mine. And if you're right smack dab in the middle, uh, don't use either of our codes. Go ahead and use Michael's. If Michael has one, he'll put one in the AAC feed right here. And, uh, and so there you go. So we'll have John's and, and mine will be in the show notes, and if Michael passes his along, we'll throw his out there too. So, so it's... John on the left, Dave on the right, and and for everybody smack dab uh, in the middle here, uh, then you know I, who you are. That's uh, that's Michael. I think in the show notes, I'm just going to say Dave's referral link and John's referral link. How about that? Right, and they've already they already know because they know where they sat for the show. Uh, All right, Bill. Uh, save us, Bill. So you got so you got to send those to me because I don't know what yours are. And yes, I think I, I maxed out on Dropbox. I think we're both maxed we're, out. On we're Dropbox, both maxed right? out on Dropbox. But if it, you might as well use the referral code because you still get the two fifty for yourself. Oh, right, 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 right. And and then if they ever open up, Dropbox maxes out your referrals at ten gigs, and John and I are both maxed out at ten because so many people have signed up with our codes. But we were also both maxed out at like five when they did that. And then one day they opened up the floodgates and said, you can go mm -hmm. to 10 and we were automatically there because we had already had the referral. So it doesn't hurt to have to bank those. If Dropbox ever decides to kind of raise the bar, which they might have to, if sugar sink, uh, you know, keeps up because they're, they're good competition. But anyway, uh, Bill save us, Bill, Bill writes on a recent episode. I believe it was three seventy five. You mentioned backing up purchase DVDs by using rip it. Ribbit is a great program, but it will not allow you to burn to a blank DVD. This can be accomplished by using Ribbit along with Toast. Once you've used Ribbit to make a copy of the contents of the DVD, highlight and right click on the saved version of the DVD, scroll down to show content packages. In there, you'll see the video TS folder. It's that video TS folder that you want to put into Toast, and then you burn that to a uh, DVD uh, and it will work. Uh, he says, uh, just a note. Rip it does not work on all commercial DVDs, but I've had 90% success with all the DVDs I have tried. Thanks, Bill. That's handy. That's uh, that's good stuff. I'd forgotten. You know, I used to burn them back. He says he does it uh, to uh, save the save his original DVDs from getting damaged, which is something we used to do all the time when uh, we use the DVD player in the car because, you know, DVDs that are floating around in the car just get the heck beat out of them. So we would do this and it worked great. But now with the kids, I They've got iPod touches, so they they rarely they still sometimes use the DVD player in the car, but uh, but not all that often. So that's good. That's good. And uh, and in show three seventy six, you know, we went through a uh, a painstaking process of describing how to remove log me in and and uh, how it sometimes puts stuff out in in weird places. And we talked about those weird places, not just for log me in, but for other uh, things. And Francois wrote. Uh, 
I was listening as you helped a listener uninstall log me in going through many loops, directories and things. And I know that's rare on the Mac, but there is an uninstaller inside the applications log me in folder for uninstalling log me in. And uh, and it's you know, it's the obvious stuff that sometimes is easy to miss when uh, when you go into geek mode immediately, like like we do here, John. And uh, he's totally right. You run the log me in uninstaller and it pulls all that stuff out. So uh, so for apps like this, where they have sort of blasted things all over the place, see, because sometimes the developers sensitive to the fact that they had to blast things all over the place and, and they'll give you something to take it all out if you uh, if you want to remove it. Which which reminds me because I want to remove log me in from this computer here, <laughs> and uh, and hang on this is going to be really handy for me. So thanks, Francois. This is good. There's a log me in folder. I've been fighting this for months. There it is. There's the log me in uninstaller. That's it. I just run it, and uh, are you sure you want to uninstall it? Unbelievable. It's asking me to authenticate. This is not smart, by the way. Doing Don't this do while this. Trying to now. record. Stop. Uh, I mean, yeah, stupid. Hey, it worked. Better. It's totally gone. That's awesome. Thanks, Francois. Save my bacon. Uh, cool stuff found. We have two from Greg, and I think it is the same Greg that sent in both of these. Uh, John, since you've been using Flickr, he wanted to recommend or re-recommend, as the case may be, uh, Flickery, which is an app for a Mac app uh, available for five bucks in the Mac App Store. And it's a good app to manage and see and browse and, and manipulate your uh your Flickr account so there you go that's cool stuff huh. yeah five bucks yeah I'll, i'm paying zero now i know well you yeah that's right you can use so i'm sure one. it offers more well, <laughs> well what, what aperture offers is is extremely basic and that it's only syncing so yeah they, these guys do all sorts of other cool stuff so um yeah what is what does it do it's got oh it's got like this whole kind of drag and drop manipulated it looks like itunes for uh for Flickr, and you're just kind of doing stuff so that's good it, you know it says on their website that it's 9.99 but i was in the app store earlier today and it's 4.99 so if you're interested in getting it uh, really try it oh yeah and you can try it free for 15 days if you want at their website flickeryapp.com but uh you 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 know you if they're on some little short term sale you may wind up paying double if you wait oh, I don't I don't look know at that. I don't I'm know I'm looking here so share and manage browse and view search and find explore and enjoy oh that's because Flickr offers an API which yeah. of course is a oh. application programming interface so maybe that's a cool thing about about Flickr is that yeah they they allow third party developers to build their I thought this was a plugin no this is a standalone application so yeah. uh, all right. Uh, okay. So, um, what else right. did Greg have? Oh, well, a- Greg, Greg had clean app. He says, I know there are a lot of apps that will uninstall apps and all the files associated with them, like apps, app, or et cetera. I've tried many of them and I'm super impressed with one that I found called clean app. It will actually log all the apps you install and keep good track of them. It keeps a very close eye on file operations. If you delete an app, it will ask you if you want to uninstall. So you click yes or no. Yes, we'll bring up a window showing you all the files associated with it. And usually the list is very long and the files are in places that you'd never even think of checking. Kind of like we talked about before with that log me in thing. Uh, I suggest you guys try it. I think you'll find it to be a keeper. It's from Cinium Software. And so we'll put that link in the show notes, too. So thank you for that, Greg. And then lastly, cool. This last bit of cool stuff found from Paul is, uh, is sort of a note and a question. Uh, let's see. Paul. 
writes, uh, I thought you guys might be interested in this email that I received from open DNS about something called DNS crypt. Uh, he says, uh, do you think it's going to make surfing on public Wi-Fi more secure as they suggest? So OpenDNS has this uh, trial version, uh, a beta version, I should say, of a Mac product called DNS Crypt. And the concept is a lot of times, you know, you're out at a public Wi-Fi at Starbucks or, or perhaps even just kind of a mom and pop uh, style coffee house or, or something like that where they've got free public Wi-Fi and, and there've been attacks uh, in this regard, right? Where somebody tries to hijack things or sniffs your packets and figures out where you're going and then tries to, uh, to, you know, hijack your, Oh, I did that or else. Right. Uh, 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 From a research standpoint only, of course, course. I was at the airport on their free Wi-Fi. (laughs) Right. Perfect. Perfect example. Yeah. So they came up with DNS crypt, and and near as I can tell, I haven't used it enough to uh, to confirm all this, but uh, but my guess is, and they've released the source code for this, so presumably the the community at large has uh, kind of audited what what it is they're doing. Um, they are normally when you go to a website, you know, you say I want to go to www.macobserver.com, your computer asks. Uh, what's called the DNS server to translate that into an IP address. And then it goes to that IP address. So if the DNS server that you're using uh, has been hijacked, it could redirect you somewhere else. Now that's not horrible. I mean, it's pretty bad if it's MacObserver.com, but it's even worse if they hijack it for say Citibank.com. And now you're entering your banking credentials somewhere and you think that you're actually at Citibank.com and everything looks right. So this is, this can be a real problem. When you're at home, you're using your local ISPs, DNS servers, unless you've reconfigured things. But when you're out, you're using the DNS servers from whatever the coffee shop has has defined. And while you can manually set your own DNS, it's still doing your Mac is still doing normal DNS lookups, which can be hijacked. The router, even if you say I want to go to, you know, DNS server A. Uh, it could the router could still grab it and send you somewhere else. It, it's totally possible to filter those requests. So enter DNS crypt. What this does is anytime your Mac goes to make a DNS request, it actually makes a secure. It's not using SSL, but it's using a different secure uh, protocol to go out and make a DNS request on a on a non standard DNS channel. Uh, to open to open DNS's servers, so it, you know that you're getting open DNS no matter what, and then it comes back and and you know translates it on your Mac and off you go. So it, it sort of sits in the way there, and anytime you do a DNS request, it goes out and, and does this encrypted thing. So a you know you're getting what Open DNS wants to uh, return to you, and b you know that no one else sees what uh, your DNS traffic is, which uh, which can really be a, a cool security thing. So yeah. So thanks for sending that along, Paul. That's cool. I'm going to try it, John, because it's free. Why shouldn't we try it? Are you going to try it? Are you still there? I'm still here. Oh, okay. I was, I, you know, I have this fear that we're going to have this audio issue in the show and no, we won't. maybe we won't. I lost you. No, I, I think we're, uh, we're getting yeah, close we could, here. Yeah, we could try it, but don't try it right now. Cause it might hang us up. No, not right now. But my, my guess is installing DNS Crypt will, uh, will will cause your computer to reboot during that process. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, you know, earlier in this show, you mentioned uh, using uh, Spotlight to, to launch the console, and you said that Spotlight's the poor man's launcher. And and it's true. It, it is, and it works as a great launcher, and I use it, and, and you use it, John. But uh, when, I was at, when I was at Macworld, I saw a lot of our uh, fellow speaking brethren using various different launchers, like Quicksilver or LaunchBar. And uh, it, sort of in a general sense, it seems like LaunchBar was kind of the, the, the chosen favorite. I, I'm curious what, what you listeners use, uh, because I think that our lives could probably be a lot better using something other than just Spotlight well, to, to launch apps. I, I'm pretty oh my sure God. this. Well, I have another one. Yeah, go. It's the dock. You well, see my dock. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mess. But no, but I arrange my icons in the dock and they make sense. So I have one section for browsers, one for office apps, one for music apps, one for iApps, uh, one for movie players. It makes sense to me. Sure. Yeah, but, but there's things that you can do like... Uh, I, I mean, I, I watched somebody, I think it was Dan Frakes who was doing a, a presentation in that rapid fire at Macworld Expo where he um, he was showing how you can open, like you can use LaunchBar to tell, uh, let's say you have a text file and normally it would open in, in text edit. You can actually tell the system open this in BB edit without ever even... Like, w- without having to do, you know, right-clicking and all this stuff, it was a very seamless operation. Um, so I got I, I to gotta think that our lives are going to be better for this. And you can also customize stuff, which, of course, now that we're on Lion, uh, you know, it's always coming up in alphabetical order only, and we don't have any flexibility, and it's like, you know, it's um, it stinks. So... So, I, yeah, I think I'm going to try one of them. Probably going to be launch bar, but I'm curious what you folks use. How about speech? Hmm. Yeah, good luck with that. Speaking of speech, Dave. Oh, I found something new today. I couldn't oh. say anything, but uh, Waze. You know the Waze guys. Yeah. This is actually kind of cool stuff found. So, actually, I ran into one of their guys at Macworld at one of the uh, after uh, event uh, gatherings. And he actually knew us because we had mentioned him. And, of course, you you had sent a note out to him saying, hi, we mentioned you. He's like, oh, yeah, Dave wrote me a, a nice email. And, uh, and he's like, here's a feature that's coming out, but I can't tell. But if I tell you, you can't tell anybody what it is until it's released. And today it was released. Oh, cool. So Waze, which is a crowdsourced traffic and navigation application that runs on an iDevice. Yeah. Probably an iPhone for the most part. Though I suppose you could run it on an iPad if you can mount it in your car. Sure. <laughs> Um, they just introduced a new, uh, I think it's version 3.1. It now has two cool features. One is you can use the proximity sensor. So before you had to punch the screen to enter and navigate. Now it has two things. One, if you wave your hand in front of it, kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi, it'll activate a speech recognition feature. Really? That's cool. That's so the part. So I haven't. Well, the thing is, is that registering events. So what it does is you can enter events like there's a cop or there's an accident or something like that. But you have to momentarily look away from the road. Now they make it as easy as possible, and uh, you know I've I've done it when it's safe to do so. But still, if you could do it another way, and that's what they were thinking of. How can we innovate and do that? So one, I think they use the proximity sensor in the iDevice to determine when you're waving your hand in front of it. Sure. And then they activate a speech recognition feature. I haven't used it that much, but uh, you know. It's probably not perfect, but it's it's certainly better than you fiddling with a screen while you're driving. Way, way better than fiddling with a screen while you're driving. Yeah. And and can I rant a little bit here? You know, so Go. Uh, we've had the Skype app for iOS out for a while, and it's cool. But, of course, in order to accept a call, you have to uh, have it running, and, that, and then that means your battery's dead in, like, five minutes. 
Uh, yesterday, Vonage Mobile released a new version of their app, and it it's it's actually pretty cool. This definitely qualifies as cool stuff found. So. Uh, you sign up or you launch the app and it says type in your cell phone number and you do and then it texts you a message so that you with a code so you can confirm that that number is yours right and then the coolest part is you're done you don't have to like if you wanted to contact me on Vonage Mobile John you already know how to do it because you have my cell phone number and because you have my cell phone number in your address book on your on your iOS device as long as you give Vonage Mobile permission to use your address book it uh, it'll automatically see that I'm signed up and you could contact me that way and so they, they let you huh. do audio calls and uh, and free uh, texting using the app in between people so your cell phone number becomes like your ID but it it, it runs in the background it, using mm. the right things in iOS so it, it does uh, push notifications to alert you of a call so you're not stuck with the stupid app running all the time listening for a call like Skype is mm. so so there's that, and that's cool, and you should use it because it's it's free, and it, and you should check this out, folks. But my rant is, why in the world won't Apple let third parties, i.e. Skype and, and in this case, Vonage Mobile, use the Bluetooth headset uh, that's paired with your device? It, I, I've seen beta builds of similar software that can do it, but they can't publish it because it's a private API, but it's so stupid. I'd love to be in my car talking on Skype or Vonage Mobile and use my car's Bluetooth wireless, and you can't because it's a private API to do that. It's stupid. So there's my rant. You know, that's what got me thinking. How, I mean, to me, using the proximity sensor for something that's not related to the phone operation... I'm surprised they were able to get away with it, but apparently they did. So you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I And then do. the proximity sensor, as far as I know, it's meant to make the use of the phone itself better. And that it knows whether you're, you're it's smashed against your face right. with you talking on the phone or it's away and then you can hit the hang up button, right? right? I think that's pretty much what the proximity sensor does. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But these guys apparently were able to tap into it and use it for detecting a hand wave. That's good. <laughs> All right, so uh, so let's tell them how to how to find us quick, and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap this one up. So uh, you can email, and you especially can email premium at macgeekab.com. I knew you would say premium at macgeekab.com, Dave. That's what I said. Premium at macgeekab.com. You can also call us 206-666-geek, which John is forty three thirty five. That's right. You can uh, you can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab. Uh, you can leave us iTunes comments, and you can find us on Twitter. John, tell them about Twitter. Oh, Twitter is a service that <laughs> you know what Twitter is. If you don't, Twitter.com, you'll figure it out. And you can find me at John F. Ron. You can find him at Dave Hamilton. You can find show notes and things about the podcast at Mac Geek Gab. You can find things about. Mac Observer at Mac Observer. Pilot Pete, who is piloting somewhere, is Pilot Pete. And Michael Johnston, who does the AAC version, is Michael Johnston. And I think that's all the Twitter we have to tweet. That's all the Twitter we have to tweet. That's right. And, and thank you, Michael, for uh, for all your hard work doing that AAC uh, conversion each time. We, we appreciate it, and the listeners uh, actually appreciate it even more. So, big hand for Michael. Thank you, folks. Facebook. Uh, Facebook. Oh, yeah. Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. Come over there. Like us. Love us. It's growing by... It's growing. It's growing by leaps. 
Every, <laughs> yes. Every every time I go to the page, there's there's more people who, yeah. who like us. That's good. Uh, we also want to thank Cashfly for all the bandwidth that uh, makes life easier for all of us. Cashfly.com. And uh, John, I think that's uh, I think that's as good as it, it's going to get this time around. Yes, sir. My apologies for coughing in your face earlier, folks. Thankfully, no germs were transmitted in the making of this podcast. You could edit that out, you know. No, 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 no. no. We don't do any post production here. You could edit it out. But if you did, you know, you start editing this stuff, and then you gotta, you gotta be careful that you don't get caught. Yeah. Made up.